That's kind of hard to do, isn't it, right? It's kind of like human nature. You want to hug somebody. <clears throat> You'll be glad later today that you didn't. Um, we're obviously lighter in number because of the storm and people not being able to make it in, but so you're going to have to make up for the people that are not here, especially for all those who are watching online right now that didn't drive in for church, but they decided to use the, the streaming service to be part of church. So here's an opportunity for you to get really loud. You know, each week for the last three weeks, we've been given updates on the building program and where things are at. So I've got another update for you, and I need to put it up on the screen so you can see this chart. In this last week, another $116,000 came in. That's amazing. Yeah. So if you're looking at the totals like I am, we're up to $4,609,000. And so Kyle did the calculations and said that we're um, up in the 83 percentile range now of, of getting to the 100%. And we had said last week, in case you weren't here, and John Palmer mentioned two weeks ago, that we needed to cross the 80% threshold in order to begin the building. So we're well on our way there, and we'll be able to put the paperwork out for the contractors in, in the first week of April. So you guys keep giving, and I'll keep giving updates, okay? Well done. <laughs> Great job. Okay, there'll be more updates to come. So we're going to go into not the book of Romans this morning, but into the book of Luke. I'm going to ask you to go there with me, and I'll explain to you why. I know you're thinking like, well, where's my Roman study? Um, we'll, we'll get back into Romans in a couple weeks, but this week I want to take you into Luke chapter 15, because in the last couple weeks we've looked at predestination a lot and, and have looked at it from a couple different angles, but I've had so much feedback and so many questions and so many emails coming in on uh, people wanting to have conversation about predestination, I thought it might be really good if we tried to put some flesh on it, on the, the bones of the discussion. And so I want to take you into a story that Jesus tells about the heart of God to pursue us and what that actually looks like. But that's just a heads up for this week. Next week, we're not going to be in Romans either because I'm going to be teaching on false teaching. What does it look like in our day and age, and what are you supposed to do when you encounter it? What is false teaching? So that's next week, and this week we're in Luke chapter 15, and here's the follow-up. Last week when we were in predestination, we said that it's a reasonable response of a God who knows you intimately and loves you profoundly. Predestination is the reasonable response of a God who knows you so well and loves you so much. He's willing to be a pursuer and go after you. Now, the, the feedback that I've received in the last couple of weeks is people just trying to put a framework around, how do I understand this thing? Well, here's how I'm going to ask you to kind of understand it this morning. Can you imagine being hunted down or tracked by someone, not for your harm, but for your good? Someone who's chasing after you for your good, but not for your danger. Uh, here's a, a more modern way to think it through. Um, Lori and I like movies, but there's not a lot of movies that we agree on because she has her area of interest and I have my area of interest. So Lori loves the Hallmark movies. Women identify with that, right? So yeah, there's the Hallmark channel at our house and she really loves the Hallmark movies and, and they've got to have some degree of drama to it. And then I'm a guy, so I like the guy-type movies, right? And so there's occasions where our selections of movies will merge. One of the movies that we agree on that we really like actually surprised me 
because I didn't think Lori would like it, yet she loved it. And then I began to realize why later on as the movie unfolded. It's called The Last of the Mohicans. And The Last of the Mohicans, and many of you know which one that is, but that's based on a book written by James Fenimore Cooper. And Mr. Cooper wrote that back in the 1800s, early 1800s, based on real-life circumstances of the 1700s. So the two main characters in the movie and in the book are Alice and Hawkeye. Now, Alice is the daughter of a British colonel, and she's been brought over from England to be with her dad and to live with him at a fort. And Hawkeye is a scout. He's a trapper and a guide, and he lives in the United States. And they intersect because he has this responsibility of getting her to a fort safely. Well, a relationship emerges, and these two fall madly in love with each other. Now, Hawkeye has to rescue her in one situation in the movie, but in order to rescue her, he has to leave her behind. They go into a cave together, and there's a powerful waterfall coming over the top of the cave, and the roar of the water is so loud, they can barely hear each other. And in order for Hawkeye to get away from the enemies that are pursuing them, he has to leave her in the cave while he jumps out of the cave into the waterfall. Now, in the moment, in that part in the movie, you can hear him say one thing really, really loudly to her. He screams, you stay alive! I will find you! And then he jumps into the water and disappears. So that's incredible love when someone says, I'm going to hunt you down no matter what. Now, I've been known to take my wife to the mall and drop her off at the door of the mall and turn and say to her, you stay alive! I will find you! And no kidding, I really do do that. <laughs> Imagine someone loving you to that degree. They will hunt you down no matter what. That they will pursue you and pursue you and pursue you. That's essentially what you find when you come into Romans chapter 8. And Paul begins writing in verses 28 through 30 about this amazing love that God has for us. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He's building on this chain of promise. and He puts all the links of the chain together saying, you can know that God has your best interest at heart because he's put all these pieces together. Paul actually stages it as an infallible guarantee God's causing things to work together for good. For, for a believer, it may not always feel like it. But in many of those times when things are going rough, God's in the, midst, in the background working all things together for good to take you deeper, to make your relationship with him richer, to strengthen you. But for the non-believer, a person who's not yet a believer, God's there waving the flag saying, here I am, pay attention, do you see me? With those thoughts in mind, I want to take you into a story in which you see God as the pursuer, the one who hunts you down, and it's Jesus telling the story. Dr. Luke records it in Luke chapter 15, and it's in verse 1, and he begins by telling us the background of the situation. So you can look on the screen, you can follow along in your own Bible, you're definitely going to want your notes out this morning in order to follow along, so pull those out of your bulletin, and it starts this way. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. I find that to be an absolutely amazing verse, considering these individuals that are coming near God. So tax collectors, if you're thinking like in the Roman world, these are individuals who were money managers, 
but not in a good way. They're not, they're not like your financial advisor. They're not like somebody you trust. These are individuals who are not out for your good. The tax collectors actually work for Rome. And in their working for Rome, they've been assigned a district. So Rome would assign a district to someone, and their job was to get taxes from that district. And so Rome would set what the level was and say to that individual, we want this amount of money out of that district, and it's your job to get it. And by the way, whatever you get up and beyond it, that's yours to keep. And now that's the tax collector. They will collect the taxes, but they set the rules for the district, and so they can collect whatever they want up and beyond, and they were hated as a result, completely ostracized from their community. The public, the general public, couldn't stand them. Now, that's one category, and then Luke says there's not only the tax collectors there, he says the sinners are there. Well, who's he talking about? Because we've all got sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Well, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, when you see the title, the sinners, it's talking about a different breed of people. It's talking about those who are openly wicked. They are the outcast because of their occupation and many times the life choices that they've made, and they definitely do not follow the rules of religion. And every town has them. Every town's got prostitutes. Every town's got the drunks. Every town's got the junkies. Every town's got the drug dealers. And that's what you find Luke writing about here. He says, all of these individuals, all of these who have rejected the norms of society, the ones who are scorned by the well-behaved religious people, they're there. It's absolutely remarkable when you open up the Bible, you find Jesus routinely talking with loan sharks and prostitutes and drug dealers, and junkies. That's who he's speaking with in this story. And verse 1 says, they were coming to him. And these are people who are completely uninhibited. Their sin is publicly egregious. Imagine, church, the condescension of God. One thing to leave the throne of heaven, right? One thing to leave the throne of heaven and come to earth, but to condescend to those who are flagrant in their behavior. I read this story and I have to ask myself, is that true of me? Am I that authentic? Am I that genuine that those are attracted to me? Because I'm told I wear the image of Christ. You wear the image of Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. Is that part of society attracted to you? Are they drawn in? Like, how warm and loving is our God? Jesus is a magnet to them. Now, check this. When is the last time you ever heard of all of that kind of people, all the sinners in town, being drawn into God conversation? Ever? Like, I've never heard of it. Now, this is written in an imperfect paraphrastic in the Greek language. That means it's a routine thing. This is not a one-time thing for Jesus. This happens over and over and over again. It's regular for him. They find Jesus safe. And I don't mean that he's approving. I don't mean that he's approving of their lifestyle, their, their choices. There's a difference. They find him safe to come into conversation with him, and they never, ever found it with the religious people. So they're coming near him. I want to spend time with that phrase for just a minute because it applies to you in your walk with Christ and how you come near to God. 
We're told in verse 1, they're coming near him. You want a picture of God that gives you a clear insight of who he is? Just drink in that phrase, God is absolutely approachable. When he pursues you, don't run the other way. He's approachable because he wants to be with you. So the Greek word that you find in your notes is this word in gidzo. And there's four of them this morning. But this particular one is describing something that applies to you. When it says they're drawn near... They're coming near him. This is really interesting to me because this is the exact same Greek verb that's used to describe how you approach God and what Scripture encourages you to do. James 4, 8, draw near, in gidzo near, in gidzo near to God, and he will draw near to you. He's approachable. He'll run the opposite direction. And now, that's James 4.8. There's another one that takes it up a notch, Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us in Gidzo. Let us go near to God. Why? Because he sits on a throne of grace. He sits on a throne of grace, and if you need mercy and you need grace, he's approachable. He's the God you can go to. You don't have to run the opposite direction. Even though you might have guilt, you might have sin on you, don't run away from him. So watch what the junkies are teaching you when you go to that story, Luke 15, 1. The tax collectors, the sinners, they're drawn near to him. Why? It says in verse 1, to listen to him. Are you checking this? The junkies want to hear Jesus? Those whose lives are totally messed up, and you may not think that that's true because there's a hard shell, because of the scars, the, the abuse, the beatings... The things that have happened to them in life, you may not think that's true, but they want to hear Jesus. So what is drawing them in? Well, I promise you, it's not the scorn of the Pharisees and the scribes as you're about to see. It's not that unrighteous behavior by them. They batter them. Here's what I understand it to be. It's tender truth. It's the tender truth of God's love. Scripture says that <clears throat> when you and I speak, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Uh, I talked to a lady last night who's new to New Hope. She's been here probably about six weeks. Very new to Christ uh, and completely a new believer. And she's trying to put all these pieces together and make sense of it. But she said this to me last night. You know, um, 25 years ago, I was talking to some people who were Christians. And she said, I was raised um, in a home where there was no talk of God. And she said, these are people who um, I, I knew because of a family relationship, and they found out that I wasn't a Christian. And she said, do you know their first words to me were, you know you're going to hell, right? Right? That, that's their greeting statement to her. She said, do you know how repulsed I was? I wanted nothing to do with it. Now, 25 years have gone by, and now I finally find myself coming into a relationship with Christ. She says, I know hell is true. I know it's real, but to be told you're going to hell in, in that context, that's not what people need to hear in that moment. They need to have the truth spoken to them in love, gently, the way that Jesus was drawing these people in. There's, there's a point in time where you have to tell people the consequences, but speaking the truth in love because these are individuals who long ago left behind respectable behavior. They've completely shut the door on godly things. But Jesus, praise the Lord, opens the door. He opens the door to everyone. 
and allows them to come into relationship because he's the God who's the pursuer. So watch how the Pharisees, the religious people, respond. Verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are guys who are both experts in the law, they're lawyers, and they're teachers of the law, so they're college professors. They're they're experts in these things. They know how to teach people, and they know how to keep the law, but they do not agree on very much. These are two different political parties, right? It's like trying to get the Republicans and the Democrats together to have budget conversations. They want to go the opposite direction, but they have to because of their job come together. Well, the same is true with the Pharisees and the scribes. They don't want to come together, but they've got a common enemy, and their common enemy is Jesus. And so they begin to grumble about him. It's very likely that in this setting, they're out there as a special delegation, that they've been sent out by the Sanhedrin to spy on Jesus, trying to find something to bring charges against him. So Dr. Luke records that they begin doing something that all of us have done at some point in our life. They murmur, they complain. The word is ganguzo. It actually sounds like complaining when you pronounce it, right? Ganguzo. This man, he receives sinners. Ganguzo. You got a teenager in your life that complains about the food you put on the table? They murmur. Ganguzo, what is this stuff? Right? Do you get the sense of what's going on here? This man, it's a way not to use his name. No, we find him receiving them. That all these people who are ostracized, he's welcoming them, so he's hanging out with them. Now, just put it in modern-day context. Jesus walks through the door of Bigby, and these individuals are in there hanging out, and they're the first ones to give him a fist bump. Hey, how you doing? I'm glad to see you guys. How you been? Now, he steps it up a notch when Dr. Luke records he's eating with them. So he's not just showing up at the restaurant. He's not just showing up at the coffee shop. He's sitting down with them at the table. Now, in this culture, in the first century, this is showing full fellowship, full-on acceptance of sitting down and spending time with them. What does God want us to know by telling us this story? I'm sure of this. God wants them to know, and he wants us to know. He is the one pursuing a relationship. And what better way to do it than to make them welcome? Come on in, you guys. Let's sit down and talk. Now, I'm not suggesting that other people living in the first century weren't there to help, but their helping was always done at a distance. Like, hey, I'll give some money at the synagogue, and you guys who run the synagogue, you you go take care of those people. They would never dare sit down with them. It's unthinkable. So rather than, in this case of the Pharisees and the scribes, rather than participate with God in his mercy, it's easier just to explain it away. He wants to be one of them. He receives and he welcomes them. He sits down and has meals with them. Secretly, he wants to do what they do. Let me ask you a question. You're going to have to lean into your own experience to answer this. When someone is far from God, when they're lost... Do they always know that they're lost? Are they aware? Are are they dialed into the reality that they're in need of a relationship with God? Not always. That's not always the case. What they do know is they don't like where they're at. See, I've never met a little girl who says, I want to be a prostitute when I get older. 
You're never going to meet a boy who's going to say, I want to be a junkie when I get older. You're never going to meet someone who says, I can't wait to be a loan shark. It's not reality. See, they don't like where they're at. I've never met an addict who likes it. They know they don't like where they're at. They don't like their life. So Jesus is not hanging out with them to engage in that. He's not trying to be part of their sin. He's there to offer a new life to the lost because God's not willing that any would perish. So the solution is God pursues. God goes after. And to do that, he has to get into their world. Now, there's a metaphor that's used that's really strong in the Bible to describe God and our relationship with God, and it calls him a shepherd. Psalm 23, you especially, and I know many of you know Psalm 23, so you know immediately where I'm going with this. God's the shepherd, and we're the sheep, just to be really clear, and, and you need to get out of your mind the image that you have right now of the pristine little white sheep that you see when you go to the county fair, right? That's not the image in the Bible. The, the kind of sheep that are coming up in the story that Jesus is about to tell you, they're the kind of sheep that hang out out in the wild, and they get things in their fur, and, and they do things, and they step in things, and they're loud, and they're nasty sometimes. They're not always smelling real good. So there's some things that are going on here that you need to get in your mind the right way when Jesus begins talking about sheep, because sheep wander, it's what they do, that's why they need a shepherd. Go with me into verse 3. So he told them this parable. Now, this is Jesus talking, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, this is a really common situation. There's a, a lot of livestock management in the first century, and a common flock is a hundred. Most shepherds have a hundred in their fold, and so they've got to manage them. And by the end of the day, you come to the evening, and he's counting his sheep. And there should be a hundred, but he's counting them as they go through the gate, and there's only 99. One's missing. Do you notice, maybe you've read this story a hundred times. I bet some of you have grown up in church, and you saw this when you were eight years old. Have you ever noticed before that the shepherd never, ever expects the lost will come in on its own. He's got to pursue it. He's got to go after it. So he goes out on a journey. It's your next Greek word in your notes. It, mean, it means to travel, peruomai. It, it means to go out on a journey, actually traveling a distance. So right away, you're beginning to understand this is bigger than just livestock management. This is about more than just a first century story. He's beginning to talk about the purposes of God because he uses the word lost in verse 4. And in the Greek language, this is really important because the people who were sitting in that room listening to Jesus talk, they understood that lost means perish. This is not just something about a sheep that's wandered away a little bit, maybe 100 yards away. This is about something that's in danger. So you come to your third Greek word and it's talking about something that's going to be destroyed, apolemai something that's absolutely in, in danger of perishing. That's what he means when he says lost. That's a match for what Jesus has told us about his mission. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was, what church? Lost. It's the same way Jesus is talking about the sheep. 
See, there's a transition going on in the midst of this story, and you've got a really persistent shepherd here. He's going out there until he finds it, not until he gets hungry and decides to go home. Not until it gets nighttime or not until it starts raining. It says, until he finds it. Now, that should set you back a little bit because our human nature is not to keep going no matter what. This is the God who's not willing that any would perish. This is the God who keeps pursuing. One percent? Really? Like one out of a hundred? It seems like an acceptable loss. If I've got a hundred one-dollar bills and I, I'm missing one dollar, I'm not going to turn my house upside down looking for that one dollar. I'm certainly not going to go on a journey looking for it. This is a one percent loss. Does that seem out of proportion to go on a journey for? So you're looking at the pursuit of God, the God who says, it's reasonable for me because I know you so well and I love you so much. I'm going to pursue you. Now, I absolutely pity sheep because they're totally defenseless. We'll go back into the story for a minute. Is there a more defenseless creature on God's green earth? I don't think so. They have no fangs, right? They have no roar. They don't have a mean face whatsoever. Even when they're angry, they can't look angry. And reality is, without a shepherd, they're just another meal, right? They just don't know it yet. They're just waiting to be consumed. Here's the hardest thing about them. Their, their brain's about that big, and they have that much instinct to come home. They have no instinct to go home. They don't know to do that. And so Jesus asked this question. God's asking a question. What do you do? What man among you, if he's got a hundred sheep and he finds there's one missing, what do you do, religious people? What do you do, people listening to the king of glory? What do you do in such a case? Because if they're lost, that means they're living by impulse. They're living by chasing their passions, unaware that God's pursuing them. God pursues in exactly the same way. He seeks because we are destitute without even knowing it. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, without even knowing that they're lost. So you're beginning to get a really clear image of the nature and the character of God. Here's a much clearer image when you go to verse 5. Verse 5, Luke 15, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. What church? Rejoicing. Now, my mind goes back to the time when Lori and I had sheep on our property and the times when they wandered. And I can tell you, when we found them, I was not rejoicing, right? There wasn't rejoicing thoughts, and I certainly didn't want to lay them on my shoulders because they smell, right? And they do things, and they're noisy, and they're dirty. And I'm looking at this and saying, this is the nature and character of God, to find the lost and to put them on his shoulders. So here's the contrast between my nature and God's nature. God's not beating the sheep, right? 
God's not beating the ones that he found because lost sheep, many times, they're weak and they're bruised and they can't keep up with the rest and they're hurting. See, this is the very issue that keeps people away from God. There's there's this fear inside that if I go to the shepherd, he's going to beat me because they know human nature. They don't know the nature of God. So immediately begin thinking, I don't measure up. I don't want to go there. He's going to beat me for my behavior. If that's you this morning and you're not yet in a relationship with God, let me encourage you, do not wait until you measure up. You will never measure up. We don't measure up here. If you're looking around this room and you see people with their Bibles open and you're thinking, man, I'm sitting among a bunch of, among, among a bunch of church people. They're studying the Bible. They listen intently. They must come to church all the time. They must really have their act together. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Right, church? We all have been lost. We now have been found. So if you're looking at these people thinking they're so righteous here, we all can identify with this lost sheep. Don't wait until you measure up. That's why we have a God of grace, because he grants grace. He grants mercy. He grants forgiveness. Now, you come into the end of the story, and you watch Jesus make this transition when he begins talking about putting the sheep on his shoulder, and then we're told there's celebration going on. And I want you in your mind to begin mentally thinking of this comparison between the joy of the shepherd and that very thing that Jesus feels in the midst of saving. I want you to really appreciate the setting of what you're about to hear. Let's just mentally go back 2,000 years. Rome is in control. They're the world power. Now, China, they're a world power also but they don't know about the power of Rome. Rome doesn't really understand the power of China. There's things that Caesar's doing in his palace to strategize and move mountains. There's things that are going on in China that involve hundreds of thousands of people in war. Monumental things. There's things going on in Africa because there's a powerful king who rules over Ethiopia. And yet, when you come to this story, you find God sitting in backwater village, Israel. No account place whatsoever. In the midst of some setting with what? Maybe 100, 200 people gathered? I don't know, maybe 50. Individuals who are casting stones saying, he's with sinners. He sits down with these people. And in this story, God begins telling us things that only God knows. Things that we've never known before. You could look all the way through the Old Testament and never find this information that's about to come up because God about, is about to say this kind of thing, this thing that we're talking about, this is about my home. This is about what I know. This is all about eternity. It's all over this. Go with me to verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now you're noticing that the story is making an eternal shift here. Suddenly, God begins talking about heavenly things. Last verse, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
I wonder if you've read this story for years and you've never noticed that the shepherd, he doesn't actually go back to the pasture in the story. He goes to a superior place. He goes to his home. And when he gets there, celebration breaks out. There's a party going on. So this I tell you statement by Jesus, it has a special degree of gravity to it. There's some weight behind this because what you have is an eyewitness. An eyewitness who has the knowledge of God's thoughts, who is saying, I tell you, I know God's thoughts. I know what goes on in heaven, and there's a victory dance there. There's a celebration in heaven. And in case you're questioning that right now, go to your very last Greek word and look at the word kara that's used to describe the rejoicing and the celebrating and the dancing. And when you first read the definition, you're looking at it and thinking, oh, it's not that great. Read it through. There's gladness. There's cheerfulness. But are you noticing the little X's? Times greatly. Times exceedingly. Now, you and I, we tend to think we know what celebrations look like. We immediately begin thinking of New Year's Eve. We'll think of people celebrating by blowing air through horns and, and confetti dropping down from high heights. Or we think of Super Bowl halftime. And we think, big celebration. Or maybe we think of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, saying, wow, that's a way to celebrate. Look at the fireworks. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the celebrations here on planet Earth pale in comparison to what goes on in heaven? Oh, yeah, now we're tracking. I believe the celebrations in heaven make what happens here on earth look like a downer. There's serious celebration, Jesus says, and it's exceedingly great. And he says, there's more of it, like plus, plus, plus. Did you know that was true of you if you're a believer in Jesus right now? Did you know that there was a party in heaven in the moment that you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Like when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to ask God if I can see the videotape of when they celebrated. You should do the same thing. I'm thinking maybe it's recorded. I'd like to see the celebration that broke out. I'm thinking there must be a lot of celebration in heaven. Because right now somewhere on this planet, somebody's coming to faith in Christ. Somebody just came to a realization of who Jesus is. And party breaks out. And Jesus says, there's joy in heaven. How should heaven respond? They're celebrating the rescue and the rescuer. And they know better than you and I do what the lost have been saved from. They understand it. Remember, angels are built for God's glory. I'm thinking the occupants, meaning those who are in relationship with Jesus, who have died and gone before us the occupants of heaven, and the angels of heaven, I think they're all part of this celebration. And angels are built for God's glory. They celebrate God. They celebrate the rescue. This is really important evidence here for you to get in your head. How much glory does it bring to God when you lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ? See, your activity on behalf of Jesus, it reverberates in eternity. So this is all about God pursuing, God going after. And when he's gone after and rescued, something happens. I want to end with this one thought that Jesus left us with in verse 7. 
he says there's much more celebration in heaven over the one who needed to repent than over the 99 who did not need to repent. And that kind of leaves us with a question because we know that everybody needs repentance, right? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about those who don't have any open, visible sin. They're not like the drug dealers. They're not like the prostitutes who are just sinning publicly. We all have sin. We all need to repent. But they, these individuals he's talking about, they have no gross, no open, no visible sin. We know that there's none righteous. Scripture's already told us that, Romans 3.23. You remember that a couple years ago when we were back there? All have sinned, right? Underline, underline, all. All have sinned. We all were lost. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That could be a great line to a song. I once was lost. I once was like one of those sheep who messed up his wool and I was in a ditch, but now I'm found because the shepherd knows you intimately and loves you profoundly. He left heaven to pursue you because Jesus is a good shepherd, amen? He doesn't beat the sheep. He's a good shepherd. He does not chastise. So rather, when the pursuit turns into a rescue, I will find you. He finds us. He makes us clean, presents us before the Father, and there's a celebration. See, what you've just seen is the core of the gospel. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amazingly, God planned it. God personally carried it out. He didn't send someone else. He sent himself. This is the reasonable response of a God who knows you intimately and loves you profoundly. I'm going to close with you in prayer right now that God would take what you've just heard because I guarantee you there's a lot of lost people represented in this room in the sense that we all know somebody at work. We all know somebody in the classroom. We all know somebody in our hallway. And maybe even God laid on your heart this week that somebody who needs a relationship, who's far from God, would that not be cool that God would use you to bring them into relationship with him? And then you'll hear one day about a party that broke out on behalf of that situation? That would be pretty awesome. So I'm going to pray that God would inspire you to move closer toward that one like you see Jesus moving closer to those who are on the outside looking in. Let's pray. Father, you are the, the pursuer of our heart. Somebody told me this morning that they saw in a song that you're called the hound dog of heaven. You hunt us down. We can't even get into talking about your grace and your mercy because it's so profound. But just the reality that you would leave 
and come because you want us? Cause that, Father, cause that to make us stop in our tracks and consider whom we know that is desperately far from you. God, I ask that you would translate that into activity, that you would inspire us, inspire us to move towards those individuals to draw them into relationship with you. God, keep us from being individuals who would beat the sheep and keep us from being people who would not speak the truth in love. But rather, let us be as gracious as Jesus and speak authentically. I pray for our church that way, that we would be identified as people who are so sold out for you that we want to look like Jesus. And then that looking, we would look at stories like this and say, that's what I want to look like. And we're not afraid to hang out with those who may not look like us and act like us. But for the sake of the kingdom, God, that we would go to great lengths to rescue and that you would rescue through us and through our willingness to be used by you. I pray for us in that way, that there would be a cause for celebration in heaven because of the way that new hope acted on your behalf. We love that thought, Father. We praise you in the matchless name of the one who found us when we were lost, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.